several years ago, Dan and Dan Kirk and I were traveling together. We were we've made several overseas trips, and uh, we were uh, in Siberia. <clears throat> in God's grace, it was April and not January. Um, and we were teaching, and one particular session, a man raised his hand. I was teaching, and and he said, "What kind of things do you guys counsel?" And I gave him a list, you know, the laundry list, anger, anxiety, uh, depression, marital issues, um, food issues, uh, various kinds of addictions, etc. Sexual sin of all different kinds, homosexuality, those kinds of things. And I said, well, why do you ask? He said, because all your examples are about sex and I'm just kind of curious if you counsel anything except sexual issues. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, we, we counsel a lot of things. I mean, it's kind of a full-fledged, we do, we do everything. Uh, but in all honesty, sexual sin is just pervasive. And it's just overwhelming. Our culture is just saturated with it. Do you not have a problem with sex here? Do you not have sexual sin here? Oh, no, it's not a problem here. And I didn't say it, but here's what flashed through my mind. (laughs) Huh, isn't that interesting? Because I'm regularly getting emails with with um, promotions in the in the subject line. You know, find your Russian bride here. (laughs) I might don't open them, but they're coming from you. Um, And I asked somebody about it later. I said, so, you know, give me the scoop. Is there really an issue or not? He said, I don't know. He said, there, there's a massive problem with sexual sin in Russia. It's just they're unwilling to talk about it, even in the context of the church. And uh, that, that's really not helpful. I don't know how many of you guys are counseling regularly, um, but if you are counseling regularly, it, it, it will not take you long until you deal with sexual sin. It's just, it's just pervasive. Um, When our women counselors counsel women, they make the assumption when she walks in, doesn't matter what she's coming for, she's been abused in some way. And that is almost without exception. Um, I believe at one time 90% of our women counselees had been abused in some form. Um, And that's that's just a big part of it. I think I mentioned uh, earlier a couple that I counseled that they had been celibate half their marital life. That was part of the problem. Uh, he had multiple kinds of sexual sin in the marriage as well. But part of the problem was she had been assaulted sexually by an uncle when she was a child. And that left her thinking particular things about the sexual relationship that was um, made things prob- problematic. Um, I've had multiple friends from seminary that have... Um, left the ministry because of sexual sin, uh, one of whom was one of the most gifted teachers I knew, um, exceedingly gifted, had a Ph.D., was teaching in a seminary as well as pastoring, extraordinarily gifted man, and he left the ministry because of solicitation. You don't want to be crass, but it's like, how can someone so smart be so stupid? Um, and, and it's because there's something that he's believing in his heart that will give him greater satisfaction than obedience to Christ in that moment. Um, so just understand, there is a pervasiveness here. I, you want to be careful. Dan would always say as, we're, as we, were, we would travel together and we would divide up topics, he says, you know, 
we've got to deal with these issues. And he says, nobody wants to be the pervert. But people are struggling and hurting and overwhelmed, consumed, enslaved to these things. And they need help. And the Bible has answers. So we need to help them. We need to not be ashamed about speaking about sexuality in the God-given way that we talked about earlier. And we need to not be ashamed about correcting when that needs to be done. And we need to do that here. So what I want to do today is just kind of walk through when we talk about sexual sin, what are we talking about? And give you an overview of that. Then I want to spend most of our time um, thinking about a particular case study about sexuality uh, and what uh, what a father says to his son about sexual sin. And then think very briefly with you just about some key issues that you're going to want to deal with when we're talking about sexual sin. So hang on to your seats. Here we go. When, did I fi- when do I finish? 3.45? Is that right? Okay. Or whenever I get tired. <laughs> All right. Definition of sexual sin. Here's what we're talking about. Sexual sin is a selfish, idolatrous desire to gratify self by engaging in thoughts, words, or actions of a sexual nature that God has forbidden. Every word there is important. Um, it is desire. It is self-gratification. It is mental as well as physical and verbal. Um, Notice that it is not just an act. When we're talking about sexual sin, we're not just talking about actions. We're talking about desires. We're talking about motivations. We're talking about inclinations of the heart. We're talking about longings. All those things refer to inner man. So it is very much internal as much as external. In fact, it starts as an internal sin before it becomes an external sin. Um, when we're talking about sexual sin, what kinds of things are we talking about in specificity? And the Bible identifies all of these things. We're talking about adultery. Adultery, by that we mean we're talking about extramarital sexual relationships. So one or the other of the party is married. They've gone outside the bounds of that marriage and they've sought their gratification uh, in sexual activity outside the marital union. Uh, We're talking about what the Bible just calls immorality. The word there is porneia, from which we get our word pornography. It's the the broadest term that the New Testament uses about sexual sin. It's all-inclusive. So everything gets tossed into this broad category of porneia. Uh, It's sexual immorality. And we also are talking about fornication, which is to be distinguished from adultery in that it is premarital or not marital um, sexual relationships. Uh, currently we have in the culture something called polyamory, which is multiple people in one marital union. So it's not just polygamy, but it might be two men and two women in one marriage or three women and one man in one marital union. Um, and and when, when everything came down with homosexuality and marriage gets redefined in terms of homosexuality, that kicked the door open for everything. It wasn't just homosexuality, homosexual marriage, quote unquote, that came in at that point. Everything came in. And I said then at one of our conferences, this is multiple years ago, I said, uh, the next thing to come is polyamory. It's coming, I promise you. And sure enough, you, you will read more and more about that. It is not, it should be, but it is not unusual. 
Uh, we're talking about homosexuality. You're well acquainted with that. The Bible has much to say about that, and we know of that from our culture as well. We're talking about incestuous relationships. We see that 1 Corinthians 5.1, a man who is living in open sexual relationship with his stepmother um, and undisciplined by the Corinthian church, which was a reason for all the conflict in the Corinthian church. We're talking about bestiality. We're talking about mental, mental immorality. We're talking about voyeurism. We're talking about mental pornography. We're talking about masturbation. Sometimes guys will tell me they're struggling with pornography. I'll say, so when's the last time you looked at pornography? Oh, I haven't looked at pornography in two months. I said, are you still masturbating? Yes. What are you looking at when you're masturbating? Nothing. I said, what about the images in your mind? Oh, well, yeah, that. They're still committing pornography. They're just, they just don't have something physical in front of them. But they're running through the Rolodex of pictures that they have stored up in their minds. And they're re-looking at them, even though they don't physically have them. So you will want to be attentive to that. Um, pornography is often mental, not just physical. We're talking about exhibitionism. We're talking about sexual child abuse, rape, prostitution, transvestite, transvestism, and transgenderism, which obviously has had a massive hold on our culture these days. It's pretty sordid, isn't it? I, honestly, you know, Paul says in Ephesians 5, such things shouldn't even be named among you. That's, that's that list. Um, and he means by that they shouldn't be named among you and that you shouldn't be treating them as if they're normal. It, obviously, in this context, we've got to talk about what, what does the Bible have to say about these things. The Bible names these things, so we don't need to be ashamed of from, from that standpoint. But um, we sure don't want to get in the mode of, you know, we're just talking about it as if it's the norm and it's part of our lives. You have a question? Have you heard of phylogeny? That's a new one. Help me. Yeah. 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 Sologamy, I think. Yeah. So you marry yourself. Um, that may or may not have a sexual. You know, I'm talking about sexual sin here. So I would need to do some. You know, how, how's that playing out? Um, and and you. I'm anticipating that you would be dealing with that from an issue of masturbation, probably self-gratification, right? So, and and honestly, that one's easy. Guys will tell you, and I'm I'm off off the off the ranch or wherever I'm supposed to be. But guys will come to you and say, "What's the big deal with masturbation? It's just me, right? So I'm not hurting anybody." So what do you tell them? I'm sorry. Yeah, so we never sin in isolation, right? So whenever I sin, I'm cultivating more sins because I'm, I'm, I'm suppressing my conscience that it's telling me, don't do this. And I'm saying, ah, it's okay. And you're ignoring your conscience. You're opening the door to more sin. And what you have to do in sin influences the way you relate to other people. And the really tragic thing about masturbation is it teaches you sex is about you. And it's not. You learned that this morning, I hope. It's a gift, not for you, but for someone else. And it's not for you to indulge in for yourself. And, and when you do that, you're training yourself, take care of me. 
Instead of saying, how might I care for you? That's where masturbation is a violation of scripture. That, I'm assuming that's where that would go with that conversation. Though I don't know for a fact. Uh, so let's talk about um, some key passages you're just going to want to have in your hip pocket. You're not going to talk about all these all the time, but these are some key ones. Genesis 1 and 2, obviously, those are critical. That's the foundation of biblical sexuality. Uh, you were created as a sexual creature, and every person is a sexual creature. They're created with a sexuality and with sexuality coming at puberty, right? So everyone is a sexual creature created in God's image. The question is not, are you sexual? The question is, how are you going to exemplify your sexuality and carry it out in a way that pleases the Lord or in a way that pleases self? And Genesis 1 and 2 lays that out. You're an image bearer. It needs to reflect what you do in that area of your life needs to reflect God's image. Um, it demonstrates to us that the place for that to be carried out is in the context of marriage in a hetero. I talk for a living. Uh, heterosexual relationship for the purpose of procreation and enjoyment and delight of each other. All that's packed into Genesis 1 and 2 in about three or four verses. Um, so that's really foundational. It's really critical. It's right at the beginning and it's there for a reason because it, it's going to drive everything else that is said about those relationships through the rest of the Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. Uh, Galatians 5.19-21, so helpful. Sexual sin is a manifestation of the flesh and if someone persists in that, there is every reason to question their salvation because they do not inherit the kingdom of God. So I had a friend, um, actually this is two decades ago, he was not only a friend in the church body, he was one of my three best friends in the church body. I had lunch with him probably no less than every two weeks, probably closer to every week for a long season of time. He was one of the deacons in our church body. Um, he took care of our finances, which in hindsight made me a little bit fearful. Um, and it came out that he had engaged in adultery. And not only did he engage in adultery, he engaged in all kinds of adulterous relationships, multiple adulterous relationships, ongoing over a long period of time. And we called him to repentance, ultimately ended up disciplining him out of the church body. He remains out of the church body, divorced his wife with one of the women that he committed adultery with, and now is in the process of committing adultery against her. I just found out about a month ago. So it's just a serial adultery, serial sexual sin. I sat across from him at breakfast one day, pleading with him to repent. And he said, are you worried about my salvation? I said, absolutely, I'm worried about your salvation. The text says, if, if you continue in this lifestyle, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He said, don't, don't worry about my salvation. I'm fine. I'm fine with God. Well, that's not the question. The question is, is God fine with you? And if you persist in this, it's indicative that, that you are not fine with him. And that you are constantly living in rebellion against him. You can't live in rebellion against him perpetually, ongoingly, unrepentantly and be one of his. So Galatians 5 is going to be so helpful for us. Uh, Ephesians 5, 3 to 5. There are some sins uh, that don't need to be talked about. Um, 
And, and they just shouldn't even, they just shouldn't be bantered about, right? So he says five, three to five, immorality, impurity, greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. All three of those relate to sexual sin, different forms of sexual sin, but they're all, they all have a sexual connotation as do verse four, no filthiness, nor silly talk, nor coarse jesting. All of those are sexual sin. He lists six. They're all related to sexual sin of various kinds. And then he says, but rather giving of thanks. So it's all about cultivating gratitude in the midst of um, our sexual being and what what we are and who we are sexually. Uh, That's just such a helpful passage uh, that I trust you will go to over and over because it, it, it really helps the... Counselee to understand I need to be giving gratitude. I, I, I may not be ultimately satisfied with where I am. I may desire to be somewhere else, but I need to cultivate satisfaction for being here in this place because that's where God has me. He's sovereign. He's good. This is where I am. I need to be contented and I need to be thankful. And so helping them with that is going to be really helpful. Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Uh, sexual sin invites the discipline and or judgment of God and lack of repentance encourages further complicating sins. Watch this in the scriptures. When scriptures mention sexual sin, very often you will find other sins attached. Why? We've already alluded to it. When you kill the conscience such that it enables you to engage in sexual sin, it just opens the door to all kinds of other sin as well. If this doesn't convict you, if your conscience isn't convicted here, then why would it be convicted here? So sexual sin often comes with further, always comes with further complicating sins, but it also often invites other sins. And and you're just going to find that to be true both in life and in scripture. As you read through the scriptures, you're going to see additional sins being attached to sexual sin. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 3, sexual purity is the will of God. It's the evidence of sanctification. If you're not sexually pure, it's evidence that you aren't sanctified. Pure, pure and simple. Um, if if you're engaging in these things on an ongoing basis, it means you are not a sanctified person. Um, Romans one, and we're going to talk about this in just a moment. It's not only it's not only sexual sin is not only a manifestation of idolatry, but it's also a manifestation of ungodly desires. Um, if I don't come back to it, somebody remind me later to talk about desires as it relates to sexuality. That's, it's a really important part of what we want to talk about. Um, some examples from Scripture. Do we see sexual sin in Scripture? Oh, just <laughs> all over the place. Lamech and Lot, uh, right at the beginning of the book, right? Chapter 4 of Genesis, we find polygamy and homosexuality and incest. Um, Tamar's story, Genesis 38. Um, someday I'm going to go back and preach Genesis 38 because years ago in my youth, I was preaching through Joseph's story. I started in Genesis 37, turned the page, Genesis 38, and it's like, what? 39. <laughs> and I, honestly, I jumped over it. I would not do that today. Um, I just didn't know what to do with it um, because it has adultery, prostitution, incest, deceit, blackmail. <laughs> it's like... Okay, we've got a. We not only have a mixed audience, we have mixed uh, age range here. <laughs> and how are you going to handle that? And obviously, there are ways to talk about that that honor the Lord. Uh, David's story. Um, note this. So the story's in Second Samuel eleven, chapter twelve. He's confronted by Nathan, and notice that in verse ten, Nathan says, 
Why have you despised the Lord? His adultery meant he despised the Lord. He hated God's commands for his life. And his rebellion was a reflection of his despising God. Uh, Solomon, 1 Kings 11. Um, honestly, Solomon's tough to handle, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's written Proverbs. And then he did what he did. And there, there's, there's an incongruity there. Um, and that, that, that's going to be a challenge for you to sort out with some of your counselees. Uh, summary, the cost of adultery and sexual sin is great. It keeps the heart from loving Christ. You cannot love God and sexual sin. It keeps the heart from loving one's spouse. You can love Christ and you can love your wife at the same time. The more you love Christ, the more you love your wife. When these things are in balance, the more you love your wife, the more you love Christ. But you cannot love an adulteress and Christ. You cannot love an adulteress and your wife. And those who say they do are lying and likely self-deceived. It inhibits prayers. And if my prayers are pre, uh, if my prayers are inhibited, that precludes sanctification. If I can't pray, I can't be sanctified. First Peter three, Psalm sixty-six, eighteen. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And when he says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, it's simply talking about um, if I cultivate and think on and dwell on and uh, and desire these iniquities, sins. I've broken my fellowship with God. He won't hear me. I I can't expect to have an ear with God when I'm cultivating these things. And it nullifies and invalidates ministry. Uh, Demas, having having loved this world, has gone to Thessalonica. That's what's going on. Love the world rather than loving Christ. Leads you away. And the ministry shot. It's interesting. Demas is mentioned multiple times in Paul's letters. Most of the time, you know, I've got Demas with me. He's writing... um, a variety of different churches. I've got Demas with me and Demas is with me. Demas is traveling with me and, you know, they're of one accord. And then love this world, went to the Thessalonica and he drops off the radar. He's gone. And we don't know what happened to him. Um, but his ministry was shot after that. He lost his ministry. How do these things happen? Let's look at uh, Romans 1 very briefly. And the downward spiral of sexual degradation um, again, uh, one of the lessons about sin is that it's never isolated. One sin in- inevitably leads to more. Those sins tend to move for progressively downward as the previous sins are no longer satisfying. That's what happens. If, if pornography satisfied or if alcohol satisfied, then all you would have to do is look at one picture and it would be enough. Or you'd only have to get one alcoholic drink and it would be enough. You go, oh, okay, that's all I need. And it doesn't lead to drunkenness. Why does it not? Why do you keep drinking so that you end up drunk? And why do you keep getting drunk over and over and over? Because it didn't satisfy and it's the desire to make it satisfy and you keep going back. That's why the pornographic industry is so massively influential because they can just keep pumping out billions of pictures and videos and it becomes attractive to people because they, they've got this greed and this 
insatiable desire for one more because maybe this one will satisfy me where the last one didn't. And, um, and that's what we've got going on here. So what happens? Verse 21, um, those who denied God since the creation of this world. Verse 20, his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, having been understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Every person in the world knows God. They're well aware of it. Their conscience is telling them. They look at creation now. They may deny it. They likely often will deny it. But they know. They've been given the truth. They see it. It's there. They've suppressed it. That's verse 18. But they know. God is who he said he is. I see it in creation. I know his power. Watch this. Verse 21. 21. Even though they knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. That word honor is actually the word glorify. They did not glorify God. They didn't recognize him for the majestic being that he is. And they did not submit to him. They were unwilling to reveal him for his character. They are further ungrateful. I want what I want. And I have this desire and I have a right to it. You can't keep that from me. Not that anything like that is being said in our culture in any context these days, but that, that's, that's what's going on, right? That, that's fundamentally ingratitude. I don't like the way God's made me. They engage in futile speculations. That's the end of verse 21. They became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. They're, they're vain. They're empty. There's, there's no substance to what they teach, believe. And they're just, they're just, they start out, I don't want to glorify God. And now they're down on a downward trajectory, right? Um, they suppress the truth. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. I know this is true. I'm going to take it. I'm going to take the lie instead. And the, the inference is they know it's a lie. They just don't want the truth. Let me give you one example. Um, 1969, 21% of America, which is not that long ago for some of us, but maybe for some of you, it's all ancient history. 1969, 21% of Americans believed that premarital sex was morally acceptable. 21%. It's okay. By 2013, 59% of Americans believed premarital sex was morally okay. However, this is almost 10 years ago now, 72% under the age of 35 thought it was acceptable. And I dare say 10 years later, those numbers are even more inflated, aren't they? Uh, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Which lie? Any lie. They'll take anything so that they don't have to take the truth of God. That's why you see such perversity today. It's like, when is this, when is this crazy train ride going to end? It won't. Because they're grasping at anything so they don't have to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. He will not be glorified. They will be glorified. That's their intent. That's what they want. They want self-glorification rather than God-glorification. So they will embrace various idols instead of the incorruptible God. That's verse 23. Exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Anything. I don't care. Give me an ant. Give me a goat. Give me a totem pole. I don't care. Give me anything. Just don't give me God. And they'll worship at any of those things. And again, I don't, I don't have to give you examples. It's open the newspaper. Look at page one today. I don't know. It's on page one, but it's going to be there. 
I don't look at the newspaper anymore. It's too depressing. It doesn't, it's not good for my heart. And that, that is the truth, by the way. God condemns them to their desires and their hearts are ensnared by those desires. Um, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity so their bodies would be dishonored among them. So they'll say something like, well, it can't be bad. I mean, I'm doing fine. God doesn't care. Oh, brother, that's the worst kind of condemnation because God has pulled his hands back and said, if that's what you want, you may have it. That's the final final step of judgment on this earth before final judgment. You may indulge, but there's no turning back. And that's exactly what God's done. He's, he's pulled his hands back and turned them over to let them follow the ungodly inclination of their ungodly hearts. That's a condemnation. Um, he has freed them, verses 26 and 27, to engage in unnatural lusts and degrading passions. God has surrendered them to the fullness of their depraved mind. I might have gone too quickly there. God frees them, verse 26, 27, and then God surrenders them, verses 28 to 32. Um, this is just horrific. You find this long laundry list of perversities in verses 28 to 31. And verse 32 is the clincher. Although they know the ordinance of God. It, it's, it's another time of saying in this chapter, they know, they know, they know, they know. They're suppressing. They know the ordinance of God. And they know that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They know condemnation comes attached. They not only do the same, they not only engage, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. I don't know of a verse that's more fitting for the tenor of our age than that verse. It's this affirmation. Well, of course, uh, you affirm these kinds of things. And all those things are an indication of God's judgment over them. God's turned them over. God's surrendered them. God's freed them to that. Not, not in resignation, but in judgment and in condemnation. So here's the question for you. All this started back up in verse 21, right? Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. That's the word glorification. They didn't glorify him. Is the glory of God significant in life? And we talk about that all the time, right? That the, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Friends, it's, 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 it's the center and heart of life. And this is where we're going to go. This is where they deviate. And so this is where we're going to want to take them. Um, okay, let's look at a case study. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. The father in question is Solomon. And he grabs in verse 1 his son and gives him instruction about marriage and marital fidelity. And he does it by painting a picture of what happens if one embraces sexual sin. And he's specifically talking here about fornication and adultery. But really, any kind of sexual sin could be in view here. This, the same kind of costs and dangers are involved with all kinds of sexual sin. So principle one, ignoring God's best and loving counsel 
is foolishness. Verse 1. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. You can hear the pleading in his voice. I mean, I didn't read it that way, but you hear that pleading, right? Son, listen to me. Listen to wisdom. Now, what does he mean by that? He means listen to wisdom, but he also means if you don't listen to wisdom, it's folly. It will, it will lead to all kinds of ungodly things. Um, why does he say this? Because it's protection, right? If you incline your ear in this direction, it will protect you. What will happen to this son if he doesn't listen to counsel? What if he doesn't follow wisdom? Well, listen to what Solomon says in 523. He will die for lack of instruction and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. It'll kill you if you don't listen to me. 9.6, forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. 12.23, a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. 13.16, every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. Uh, 15.21, folly is joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight. It's your protection. Uh, listen to me, because this is this is the way of life. And here here's a here's a reminder: when you're given a warning, don't ignore it. Don't kill your conscience and say, "Ah, it'll be okay." No, no. God put these things in here as warnings to us, and we need to heed those warnings. Principle two: indulging in sexual sin will scar your reputation. Uh, verse two: that you may observe discretion and that your lips may reserve knowledge that word reserve has the idea of protection or keeping knowledge so that your lips are protecting knowledge and and the the inference is your words will align with what you do you're acting in such a way that your speech about purity is demonstrated in the way you live. There's a coherence between your life and your words. And it's a reminder that when we engage in adulterous thinking and living, we will diminish our ability to shepherd others and care for them in the truth because our lives will contradict what we say. There's always, always a fallout for leaders who commit sexual sin. Or people who commit sexual sin. Part of my wife's testimony is that when she was in eighth grade, she went to summer camp and she trusted Christ. It was a great time. And you know how summer camp is, you know, back in the old days before you had email, you like you actually wrote real letters and everything. And so she was writing letters to camp counselor and she was um, to other people. And she found out shortly after camp that the camp counselor ran off with his girlfriend and was living with his girlfriend and not married. And it way later for a season it's like well there's 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 no coherence between what is said and what is done why would i follow that in god's grace he transformed her in other ways but it it's just a camp counselor it's just it's just a thing everybody's doing it. it's okay no that lack of correspondence between life and action or life and words um, is destructive Engaging in adultery and all sexual sin will diminish our reputation both inside and outside the church. 
I can't tell you how many books I've had to take off my shelf. Because of this issue. Can I just give you a suggestion? Make a list. Do it this afternoon. uh, Or tomorrow afternoon. Make a list. What will be the fallout of my sexual sin? If I engage in sexual sin, what will happen? Here's part of my list. Grieving, I will grieve the Lord who redeemed me. I will discredit the name of Yahweh, dragging his name into the mud. I will give untold hurt to Regine. That's my wife. I will lose Regine's respect and trust. If my blindness should continue, and if Regine is unable to forgive me, I could lose her. I would lose my children's respect and trust. I would lose my example and credibility, nullifying my influence on my family who need to build their relationships with Christ. I would discredit my own name. I would discredit my father's name. I would bring shame and hurt to my friends and especially those I have taught about Christ and discipled towards spiritual maturity. I can't tell you how many people I've counseled over these issues. And they, I think of them when I think about these issues and how it would harm them. I would bring shame to my church family. I would provoke weakened faith to those whom I have ministered to. I would bring great pleasure to Satan, the enemy of God and all that is good. Laughter, rejoicing, and blasphemous smugness by those who disrespect God and the church. I would heap judgment and endless problems on the person I committed adultery with. It's not just about me, it's also about her. Oh, brothers and sisters, we want to guard our reputation by keeping the internal and external in harmony for all to see. There needs to be a coherence here. Number three, just because it sounds good doesn't mean it is good. Watch verse three. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. That word for adulteress is interesting. It's not the typical word that's used. It's a word that means stranger. It means she's come into the covenant people of God as a stranger, as someone who is outside the covenant. She's operating totally contrary to the way God has designed her to operate. She's a stranger. She's a strange woman. Her conduct is unauthorized. She has no authority to make the claims that she makes. I'm getting so excited I'm forgetting my PowerPoint. And this is true not only of real life women. This is also true about websites and advertisements and the entertainment industry and go on and on. Whatever that woman says is actually actual superficial flattery and talk. It sounds sweet, doesn't it? Right? It's dripping with honey. Oh, it's sweet. Tastes good. We like honey and all the different kinds of forms of honey. And it's sweet. It's a delight, but not with her. Smoother than oil is her speech. Um, feels good to the touch. It's not. And, and this, is, this is pervasive. This is, this is what the enticement says. I want you. It'll be good. A long time ago, I logged into the Sports Illustrated website, just checking a sports score. And I remember seeing right at the top, 
dozens of women waiting for you. And I thought, I don't think so. <laughs> right. I was I was a lot more overweight at that point And I knew there's only one woman that wants me. And they don't want me. They want to destroy me. They're not coming for me for my good. They're coming for me for my detriment. They don't want me. And all that transpired through my mind in like that fast. It's like, I need to just leave this website. Thank you very much. It's flattery. It's just talk. We need to be constantly evaluating the words that we are hearing and speaking. Her words are bitter and destructive. Did you notice this? Verse 4. In the end, she is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. There's a lot of different ways to die. I honestly want to die like my mom did. And I just want to fall over dead and I'm gone and in the presence of God. I don't want to die by a sword. Thank you. That just sounds like a pretty horrible way to go. And that's what she will do. It's destructive and it's painful. And it's grievous in every way. And you need, to, you, you need to look at those words or hear those words she's speaking and say, this is the end. Do not minimize the power of temptation. It looks good. It sounds good. It seems good. It seems like a brilliant idea. No. It's wormwood and a sword. And don't overemphasize the happiness of sin. Just because it feels good doesn't mean it is good. And let us not speak deceitfully to our children and say sexual sin is bad and it will make you feel bad. Not always true. Because the sexual act is a pleasing act. And if we tell them, oh, you will hate it immediately, and they go, well, I don't hate it. And they've killed their conscience. And they've said, you know what? Dad just lied to me about that. He said it would make me feel bad, and it doesn't make me feel bad. I kind of liked it. Wonder what else Dad's lying to me about. And now I've just undermined their whole faith in everything. Lauren Winner, in her book, Real Sex, has a really extended section about this. This is quite helpful. Uh, And she concludes this way. What the church means to say, I think, is that premarital sex is bad for us, even if it happens to feel great. In other words, sexual sin is not subjectively felt. Indeed, no realm of sin is always subjectively felt, but sex, intense and complicated endeavor that it is, would seem to be a place where our feelings are among the least reliable. We may at times feel bland or blasé about premarital sex, not because the sex itself was morally or spiritually neutral, but because we are, after a fashion, sleepwalkers going through our routines, eyes closed to the reality as it really is. She's spot on. Um. Principle four. Sexual sin is deadly sin. Despite everything she promises, the adulteress in the final end won't taste good. What seemed beautiful is, in fact, ugly and bitter, though it may not appear to be so immediately. 
Adultery will bring pain and heartache, ultimately. Sexual sin will bring pain and heartache, ultimately. Maybe not immediately, but its end is never good. Um, if you're married, or your counselee is married, just, just ask them. Go ask your kids. My wife did this with our kids one time. Go ask your kids. What will you, you do? How would you respond if dad leaves me? And watch what they do. Don't say it's inconsequential. It's massive. Um, it is deadly. Are we running out of time or are you just turning pages? We have 15 minutes, right? Or 12 minutes? Okay. C.J. Mahaney writes in his book, Worldliness, Whenever we watch sin portrayed without consequences, we are prone to this deception. Sin, sexual sin in particular, is often glamorized and sensualized in the media. But like the infomercial, the claims are deceptive. They are empty words. And so there is a tremendous cost to it. What is the cost? Uh, We're going to find that in 7 and 8 and following. We want to stay away from sexual sin as much as possible. Verse 7, now then, my sons, listen to me. And notice verse 7, he started verse 1 with the one son. Maybe he's talking and the other's kind of gathering around, right? (laughs) What's dad saying? And now more are in the room. I'm sorry? You don't have those notes? Oh, bad on me. Oh, I am so sorry. Um, I'll tell you what, you have my email. I am happy to email them to you. Or I'm happy to email to like to one person who will disseminate them. Um, yeah, I don't need 200 emails tomorrow. Uh, yeah, Lacey. Yeah, Lacey can do that. Okay, so I am so sorry. Um so stay, stay away from sexual sin as much as possible. So my sins, he's addressing all of his sons. And again, he says, listen, right? So he's reminding them as he did the first son. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. So you ask a couple that's engaged, you know, what, what are the limits? What are you doing physically with one another? Where are the limits? And often the idea is how far can I go without going too far? That's the question, right? What's too far? That's the wrong question. The right question is, how far away can I stay? How much can I glorify God with my sanctified treatment of my engaged mate? Right? So, how far away can I stay away from sin? Listen, if there's, if I'm walking, if I'm walking down a road and there's a 500 foot drop off, I'm not saying, I wonder how close I can get to the ledge without dropping. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm as far away from that thing as I can get, so I'm safe. And that's exactly what we want to do with sexuality, right? Keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Why go near the door of her house? She's going to open it, invite you in, and it's too late. The invitation is, the invitation is offered, the trap is set, and it has sprung. You stay away from the door, you're not going to go in the house. You stay away from the block, you won't go to the door. You stay away from the neighborhood, you stay away from the city, and you're going to be fine. Think about Joseph. Leave your coat, dude, and run. Flee immorality, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6.18. Um, 
practice radical amputation. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's crazy to give up my cell phone. Yeah, I know. Go to an old phone. It's okay. You know, one that actually makes phone calls. And that's all you need. You don't need this other stuff. No, no, I need... No, you don't need that. People have lived for millennia without it. You're fine. And you laugh, but it's true. The question is, how... How radically are you willing to treat the circumstances of your life so you can maintain purity? Um, and if you've got to give it up, I promise you, when you get to heaven, you're not, you're not going to fret over, I didn't get the iPhone 13. <laughs> I, missed, I missed all the stuff on ESPN. I couldn't watch that ball game. You won't care, I promise. Um, Martin Luther said this, You cannot keep the birds from flying over your head. So I can't keep external temptation away from me. You can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. (laughs) They'll like that, right? They don't have to become rooted, part of your life. Um, Look up sometime, uh, John Piper. uh, Oh, I don't have the place where I got this. Piper talks about um, why, why are there no windows in bookstores? And adult bookstores. Why are they dark? So that you don't see the light. The way out is just walk out into the light. And, and in that moment, you'll get clarity. Oh, this is folly. That's why we tell people all the time, when tell your, our young men when they're struggling with pornography, listen, one of the things you do to fight against it, keep your computer in an open place so that somebody walks in the room, they see what's on the screen. And if you're struggling with it, close the computer, get up and go for a walk. And going for that walk puts you into the light physically and it helps you get into the light spiritually as well. And in that moment, you're walking around, you're saying, why was I so enticed by that? It's going to kill me. If you stay looking at that computer screen, you're going to fall. It almost invariably happens. Um, You want to stay as far away from that sexual sin as possible. Principle six, sexual sin will drain your life from your life. The adulteress will take away the best years of your life. Verse 9. Or will you give your vigor, your life vitality to others and your years to the cruel? And there's a question about who the cruel one is. The cruel one could be a blackmailer who is um, taking advantage of your sexual sin and using it against you and draining your bank account. I think more probably the cruel one is the adulteress. And she is out to get you. She's not giving something to you. She is using you for her own ends. She is taking you sexually and she's going to take everything else she can from you as well. And so strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. You know, isn't that that such a vivid picture? We're doing this... the sinner engages in the sin because it's going to be better for my life. I'm going to get something that I want. And in exchange, what's really happening is he's giving away everything. He keeps nothing. So he wants this one thing as if this puts me over the top, that gets me what I want, and he'll lose it all. He loses that and everything else. All his financial gain, all his hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. Ask somebody who's engaged in sexual sin and has children outside marriage. It's drained them. Um, The costs of adultery, 
Vitality of life, that's verse 9. Financial prosperity, that's verse 10. Physical strength, it only produces exhaustion. Verse 11, and you will groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. Let me paraphrase that. I've been such a fool. That's the groan. And I know that because of what he says in verse 12. And you will say how I've hated instruction. And my heart, inward man, has spurned reproof. Somebody came into my life and I rejected them and I turned them away. And that's folly. And it will lead then, finally, to regret. He looks for something for himself. He gives it all away. Now you've heard this. Sexual sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's absolute truth. There's nothing good that comes from it. Sexual sin, ultimately, verses 11 to 4, produces regret. That word groan in verse 11, it's a, it's a cry of animal anguish. If you find someone who's engaged in sexual sin and they are repentant, this is what you're going to find. One of the first times I dealt with adultery in our church, uh, one of the women of our church called me and she said, um, I got a phone call today and it was from the other woman. What do I do? Just weeping, just weeping, weeping, weeping. I gave her instruction. Her husband was coming home from a business trip that night. I said, here's what I want you to do. He was getting home late. And I said, um, have him call me in the morning and after you guys have talked and then I'll come over. I went over that morning. And she was sitting on the couch weeping. And he was pacing the room. What have I done? What have I done? What have I done to my family? Hitting himself just like that. What have I done? That's this. That's not the glossy picture in the magazine. But that's the heart cry. At the final end, there's only regret. There's never joy. There's never satisfaction in it. Satan is a liar and a deceiver. He never does anything for our good. And some of his most effective lies are about sexual sin. And we, we, we need to talk to our counselees about it. We need to talk to our children about it. We need to talk on our church about it. Because a whole generation is being lost. Let me give you a summary. I'll just, whoops, are these in your notes? Oh, no, they're not because you don't have the notes. I'm sorry. Uh, listening to God's best and loving counsel will produce wisdom. That's verse one. Avoiding sexual sin will protect your reputation. That's verse 2. Evaluating words and emotions truthfully will protect your heart. That's verses 3 and 4. Marital faithfulness is the joyful fruit of life. That's verses 5 and 6. Marital faithfulness... Whoops. I know some of you are taking pictures. Um... Marital faithfulness can be attained and enjoyed. That's verses 7 and 8. Marital faithfulness will add life to your life. Isn't that true? Um, You know, my wife and I, we're not old, but we're old enough that things aren't working as well as they used to. 
Um, I have peripheral neuropathy in my hands and feet. Um, it is pretty regular that my feet are uncomfortable to painful. Um, I have a pacemaker. Um, my wife has osteopenia, um, has pulled back from osteoporosis. She has knee issues. You know, things just, we're only 60. She reminded me yesterday, she's not yet. <laughs> <laughs> but things aren't working quite as well as they used to. Um, the bodies don't look the same as when they did at 24 when we got married. But you know what? Life is so much better. There's a delight and a satisfaction as we're growing old together. And it comes out of the protection and safety of the relationship. We know we have something unique and we're thankful for it. And there's a joy and a gratitude. Um, principles for dealing with sexual sin. These will be in your notes. Please email me. I'll send them. I have about 15 or 20 of them. I've just got them bullet pointed. Um, let's, let's maybe just stop with this one. Feed the expulsive power of a new affection. What someone who is in sexual sin needs is a new affection for Christ. They've been enticed by a false affection that will destroy them. And the way to get rid of that is to bring in the new affection. Does it sound like put off and put on? That's because that's what it is. You need the affection for Christ more than an affection for sin. And you take your counselee there and they will be served well. Um, it is a great tragedy, John Piper writes, a great loss when a person chooses sexual license over seeing God. It is like Einstein choosing to be a janitor or Billy Graham choosing to be a newscaster or Michael Jordan choosing to play baseball. <laughs> I thought that was a little cruel. <laughs> it's not what we were made for. We were made to see God, to know God, admire God, enjoy God, stay sexually pure and pursue the pleasures that ne never fail. One last thing. This is about your heart. Not just about knowledge. In your notes, I've done this lecture, I don't know how many times. I used to have a chart that talked about um, the statement of sexual sin and the truth of Christ. And it was really helpful. I've taken it out of your notes because it was written by Joshua Harris. Who is now an apostate and walked away from the faith so that he can indulge in sexual sin. He's lost it all. It's not about knowledge, gang. It's about your heart. And where's your heart? And what are you feeding? And where's your affection? Father, thank you. It's been a sobering time to talk about these things, but oh, so critical. Would you be pleased to guard our own hearts? Oh, Father, make us faithful vessels as we care for those who are in such deep need in our culture. Would you make us unafraid to speak about these things? And would you help us to speak about these things with purity and righteousness and even joy? Might our lives be a shining example to what you can do to preserve us in this area of our lives. And Father, would you be pleased to work in our churches in such a way that there would be radical transformation in these areas? We know, we know our children, we know our young men, we know our young women are struggling mightily. Unfortunately, some of them aren't even struggling. They just jumped in and they're in the deep end of the pool, overwhelmed. Might you be pleased to use us to help pull them out of that pool into the safety 
of the waters of Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.